Good morning, everyone. How are you all? So good to see you. Um, First Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8. So we're doing a theme here. Is it living a godly life? Is that right? So good. So good. The, um, we're going to get into it this morning because I've got a little bit of ground to cover, if that's okay. Um, I think one of the aspects of living a godly life is connected to relationship. So when you actually have a loving relationship with God, um, you will discover that one of the conduits to living a godly life is so connected to having a great relationship with God. They're so interconnected. It's hard to live a godly life and have a great relationship with God. Does that make sense? So for instance, one of the basic 101s of relationship is if I want to have a great relationship with Josh here, I'm going to find out what Josh likes I'm going to find out what Josh dislikes and I'm actually going to posture my heart towards doing the things Josh likes to do and actually avoiding the things that Josh doesn't like. Now, if it's a good friendship, it'll double back on the same way. Josh will find out what I like to do and what I don't like to do and he'll do those things and not do those things and suddenly a relationship starts to be birthed. And in the same way, this is what we're getting painted here, a picture of a life that longs to have a really strong connection with the Father. And there's a, there's, a, there's a lovely picture that connects to this idea of sanctification. So as we engage in a loving relationship with God and we posture our hearts towards the things that He loves and avoid the things that He doesn't love, our relationship with Him begins to flourish. Um, life works better when we cooperate with the one who made us. Um, it just seems to work better. Uh, I, I want a newsflash, you know, if you think you know how to make life work, I need you to be reminded that we've got to go back to the creator who knows how life works best. Um, it reminds me of the story in the, to sort of the turn of the century, the 1900s, and the, the motor vehicle just kind of got released, the Model T Ford. And one of the uh, uh, richer gentlemen decided to get one and he's driving down the road and the car breaks down, right? And he's stuck on the side of the road and he's trying to fix this thing. And there's this old man who walks past him and uh, he's got, kind of got a cane and he's walking past him and, and uh, he, he says, oh, what's happened? His old car's broke down. And he, the old man kind of offers a couple of suggestions of what could be wrong and, you know, what basically, you know, could do about it. And the young man's like, what does this guy know about this new fangdangled modern technology? You know, what does this old guy have a clue about? So he kind of rejects what he uh, has said and keeps on going for an hour or so trying to fix this thing. And in frustration, he kicks the car and gives up and he kind of gets to the point, well, maybe I'll go and do what this old fellow suggested. And so he uh, begins to implement what was suggested. And all of a sudden, boom, the car uh, emerges out of a broken state into, it's worked. So he's now driving back down the road and he catches up with the old man and the cane on the side of the road. He stops and says, hey, I want to say thanks. Thanks so much for the advice. It worked. Yeah, how do you know so much about this car? It's just come on the market. And he goes, oh, funny that. Uh, my name's Henry Ford and uh, I, I actually invented this car. And uh, he goes, oh, right. But the same is true if we want to actually access the fullness of life, we should go to the Creator and connect with Him in order to discover uh, what life is about. So in this case, when we get into the nitty-gritty, or as Josh says, we get into the weeds of this scripture, the details of this scripture, it, we basically we ought to use our bodies in a way that they were designed to be used. Um, it is our sanctification and to our benefit 
So if you want to know uh, essentially what uh, is going to bring life and life abundantly, you've got to begin to use, in this case, a ladder the right kind of way. So I've got this video, just quickly, it's a, it's a ladder that's trying to be used and uh, it's, there's no sound on it, it's just kind of an image of a ladder. It's very good. I'm so sorry. How are we going? Have you got it? No? Here we go. Just hit play on it. Just, it's, it's, it's actually very silly and super stupid. But, but you see, if you want to live a life where actually life works properly, you need to use something for the, what it was actually designed to do. If you want to stand around in life using your body in a way that's never designed for it to be, I'm looking at it on the back screen in case you're wondering, uh, you're going to waste your time, right? Far out, mate. Just pull the ladder legs out and get up the ladder and use it for what it was intended to in the first place. See, look, he's not getting it. He's not getting it. He actually, I'm not sure if he gets it, actually. But the, the point is obvious, isn't it? Does he get it? Oh, he's tired. That's right. It'll tire you out. It won't bring life. Just pull the darn ladder out properly. And I think this is a good reminder of he's still trying to do it. And I suppose today I want to start a conversation with you all about something that we don't tend to talk about in church a lot. Um, and we, I think we should in our day and age, actually. Um, it's the area of what we do with our bodies and specifically what we do in our sexual lives. Um, and I've done everything I can to keep this message PG this morning, so you'll be pleased to know, in case you are wondering. And this today, uh, please know my heart is not to bring about judgment or condemnation or shame, but actually talk about this in a way where we can actually, because we've all made errors of judgment. You know, if you haven't, you're not human, right? We've all made errors. But in the light of those mistakes, actually, how can we sort of posture our lives to live godly lives to actually please him. Um, and before, you know, before we go any further, I think when we talk about this subject, it's really important to say that you don't get right with God by avoiding sexual immorality. You get right with God because you say yes to Jesus and you open your heart to him and you say, Lord, come on in, come and live on the inside of my life. I want you as my Lord and Savior. And then over time, this process of sanctification changing into Christ likeness occurs. And so please understand when Paul's writing to First Thessalonians, and I know you do, and it's probably been said every single week, he's talking to the church. He's not talking to unbelievers. Because if you go to an unbeliever and you say, hey, by the way, you should avoid sexual immorality, you may send them the wrong message that salvation comes through avoiding sexual immorality. Actually, it doesn't. It comes through saying yes to Jesus, responding to his love. And when you do do that, he begins to change you. Um, the issue of sexual immorality, the misuse of our bodies sexually, actually that word when we read it in First Thessalonians is the word porneia, porneia, which is where we get today's word pornography. And it tends to get quiet in church as soon as you say the word pornography, doesn't it? It tends to go deathly quiet. So if it gets deathly quiet, it's okay. That's very normal, okay? Very, very normal. Um, that word is important because if, we, if we're actually going to stay silent on that matter in the church, if we're actually going to not talk about it and make um, the, the conversation around that space more of a normal conversation, it actually uh, is to the church's detriment. 
because we want to be talking about it in a way that doesn't uh, exalt it, but actually address it in a healthy uh, a way that actually is grounded in the gospel. That's how we want to address that today. One of the ways that I've found it really helpful to talk about this is to bring into the conversation a picture of the sanctity of life. The sanctity of life. It's not kind of a word that we use a lot, um, but what is sanctity? When we say the sanctity of life, sanctity of life is a principle of implied protection regarding aspects of life that are said to be sacred and of such value that they are not to be violated. And you can't talk about, talk about sanctity of life unless you talk about the one who is providing the protection. What I mean by that is you can't talk about sanctity of life without, talk about, about, without talking about the sanctifier. There's a connection between this, why is life sacred? Why has, is there a sanctity of life? Is because God has made humanity in his own image. So we are all made in the image of God, therefore there's a sacredness to humanity. There's a preciousness. There's something that shouldn't just be used and abused. It's actually sacred. And so in this picture that we've talked about here today in the scripture, in verse 3, it says it is God's will for you to be sanctified. Uh, put another way, it's God's will for you is to view your life and the life of others around you with a sanctity, with a sacredness. It's precious. It's not just to be discarded quickly. In verse 7, again, it talks about God did not call us to be impure, but to live a life that is holy, a holy life. So these words, sanctity, sanctification, holiness, they're all interconnected. And we've got to understand these words in for us if we're going to wrestle with this idea of avoiding sexual immorality. Um, the best picture that I have ever heard in that if we are not cooperating with the Spirit of God towards sanctification, it's a little bit like your life is a, has, a, has a glass panel in front of it. And the more you engage in sexual immorality, sin, anything that is those elements where God goes, actually, that's not how you build a great life, a relationship with me. It's like your panel of glass is getting gritty and dirty. Has everyone heard this picture before? Have you had that picture when you've had little kids around your house and you've fed them and their hands get all sticky and gross and then they come and touch your newly cleaned windows and then you sit there going, oh, I love kids, but mate, this is a stressful situation in my house. And then they leave and then all of a sudden you've got this grotty kind of, is no, no, one, no one knows what I'm talking about. Very good, very good. So when you have your glass panel of your life, the problem with a real grotty, you know, when people write, wash me on your car, and you just, you actually can't see out and you can't see in. Fairly logical um, thought. So when your life is grotty, i.e. not just physically but spiritually, when your glass panel you can't even see out, you begin to see life quite differently. It's easy to get bitter. It's easy to get a bit despondent, a bit depressed. You kind of lose a sense of um, sensitivity around the beautiful things in life because you just can't see them. You're blinded. Um, one other way to describe that is you're kind of living like a victim mentality in the world. You're hardened by sin. Imagine if I got a pin and started uh, touching your end of your finger all the time. Over the course of time, the skin would get calloused and hard. You're losing sensitivity. You're no longer seeing the things of beauty in life. I can't seem to find peace. How come I can't hear God's voice? 
It's almost like the things that you want to be able to see are outside your grasp because your panel of glass is so dirty you can't see out correctly. But the, the, the opposite is true, that you, people can't see into you. So what's really going on is Jesus lives on the inside of you, but your panel of glass is so darn dirty that people who actually want to see God in you, and maybe your intent is to reveal the God of all creation who lives in you by his spirit, but you can't visually portray him because your life's so gritty and dirty. Does that make sense? There's a wonderful scripture that describes that ability for others to see into your life. Remember, we're image bearers, right? We're meant to bear the image of God so that others can see him. Hebrews 12, 24 says, without holiness, Adam's translation, without a clean glass in front of your life, <laughs> no one will see the Lord. What a powerful scripture. And so this very strong comment in this moment is, if you think you can um, clean your own glass, so to speak, if you think you can clean your own life up, the reality is God is in the business of transforming you. It's God who makes us holy. Sometimes we can get into this sort of, I need to get my Windex out, I need to get my um, cloth that I keep on getting off the ceiling from the, <laughs> with my ladder, you know, to, to clean my own life. Now that's not wrong. But at the same time, if we're looking to live a holy life, it's actually God in us who's doing this. So the reason why I bring this up is it's not like, hey, go clean your life up, get holy, and then you can come and see me. No, it's not like that. The more we're with Jesus, we more become like Jesus. So it's not this sort of independent understanding of this idea of cleaning. It's actually about inviting Jesus into the process and allowing him to clean you and make you holy. The issue of sexual immorality is massive in our, our world. I don't know if you know that. At least 25% of the daily searches on the internet are around the topic of pornographic material. 25%. Over 15% of the worldwide storage of data across the internet relates to pornographic material. And the assumption to think that pornography just affects males is incorrect. It actually affects both males and females. It actually affects us all. Okay? Um, the, and the age of exposure is getting younger and younger to, to pornographic material. So it has effects on our humanity, our human experience. It affects identity, actually. Because pornography actually sends a message to the heart that when, when you engage in that kind of material, it's not now just saying, well, I made a mistake. It's sending a message to your heart that I am a mistake. It's, it's actually creating shame. It's sending a message of shame to the human heart that causes identity to be damaged. Identity is damaged. When we're ruled by shame, it's hard to be a great dad. It's hard to be a great husband. It's hard to be a great son or daughter. When shame is ruling you, it ends up affecting how we see ourselves. And uh, from the very beginning, this has been happening. Adam and Eve <laughs> chose their own way. And God's not scared of this stuff, right? God doesn't move. It's we who run from him in shame. And so we've just got to be aware the effects of our own identity are very strong. It affects relationships. Um, Pornog pornographic material creates a wedge between husband and wife, between spouse. It's destroying marriages. 
And if marriages are destroyed, guess what is the foundation of society? Marriage and family. When that starts getting eroded, the foundation of our society will ultimately fall. The enemy knows this. And so when we talk about relationships, it's important to understand what is the real reason for sexual intimacy? What is the real reason? Why did God create it? Why did he create it in the context of male and female, covenant marriage? Why is that a safe place? See, pornographic destroys the understanding and begins to see sex as an appetite to fill rather than a blessing that unites a husband and a wife. I've had many conversations with people going, hey, Adam, where in the Bible does it say you need to uh, keep uh, sexual... Uh, the sexual experience in the context of marriage. Where in the Bible does it say that? Many people will actually say, oh, the Bible doesn't talk very clearly on that. Newsflash, everyone, if anyone ever actually asks you that question, uh, welcome to the scripture that we've just read. First Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8 describes this, okay? This is the answer to that question. It says, abstain and avoid sexual immorality. It says, abstain and avoid porneia. Now, Abstain and avoid is kind of a weak phrasing, unfortunately. Um, it's actually a lot stronger than that. I'll give you Adam's strong uh, paraphrase. Um, really run away right now in the other direction and don't wait, get away right now. That's what it should be. But they're trying to put one word to this, right? Avoid, abstain, flee from. Get the hell away from that. <laughs> You're never designed for that. I don't know how emphatically I can say it. And the word porneia, to suggest it doesn't relate to sex outside of marriage, would be a reduction in the definition of the word porneia. Now, back then, when they first wrote this, there wasn't internet pornography. There wasn't image capturing systems. Um, and people might go, oh, it just relates to being with a prostitute. It does relate to that, but it's so much more vaster than just that concept. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of a background around this word porneia. Sex is a powerful bond that's meant to unite two people, husband and wife. And sex outside of the covenant marriage is dangerous. It's damaging. It actually is um, quite devastating. And the picture I've heard used is that the, the sexual experience is like a fire. There's a passion. And fire has the capacity, depending on its context, to either do extreme damage or to do actually be a blessing. So imagine a fire in a forest. You know, we're going into our summer season right now. It's always a dangerous time, isn't it? But fire in a forest can be devastating. But fire in a fireplace actually is helpful, useful, warmth, cooking, beneficial. It actually is a blessing. Pornography damages the human dignity, it, uh, it objectifies, it demeans, and those caught up in that industry are affected tremendously. And so when you look at pornographic material, you're actually promoting uh, an industry that is hurting, destroying, and taking advantage of people, people that God loves. The reason why I bring that particular point up is because verse 6 actually speaks about this. It says, and in this matter... No one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins, as we have told you and warned you before. 
So there's a, an element that this scripture is speaking into. Don't allow sexual immorality to be the thing that causes others to be injured, others to be affected. It's quite a strong scripture. Aren't you glad I got given that this morning to preach on? How are you feeling? Are we going okay? I, I know it's, 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 trust me, it's hard to talk about it, let alone hard to sit there and listen to it, okay? But I tell you, we must, we must. And there's a reason why we must. But we'll get to that. Pornography is destroying those who view it and those who produce it. It's destroying people's lives. It's destroying human flourishing. The last effect of this I just want to touch on is it actually affects brain uh, wiring, actually. Uh, it actually rewires the brain. When you look at pornographic material, one of the um, hormones that gets released is an addictive hormone, which is completely different to the hormone that gets released when you are having a sexual encounter with your spouse, right? The hormone that gets released in the action of that in covenant marriage is a release of hormone that makes you cleave to another person. It's amazing. And it's scientifically proven that the hormone, when you look at pornography, creates an addiction to that hormone. And so what happens is you're no longer addicted to the image as such. You're addicted to the hormone that got released because of that. Does that make sense? And that is the reason why there's a rewiring that's happening in the brain. The effects of that are very difficult to break. And there's a heart cycle as well for the believer. Um, that's, that cycle looks like this. You make a mistake, you run to Jesus and you ask for forgiveness. Well, let me go back, okay. You make a mistake, you feel good for two minutes because that's what sin does. It makes you feel good for two minutes. And then five minutes, you feel guilty and shameful. And then you go, Jesus, please forgive me. And he does. And then one week later, you're back into it. And then the cycle continues. You feel good for two minutes and then five minutes and it just keeps on trucking. And so the heart, the human emotional heart, the core of who you are, the soul of who you are is affected in a way that is a difficult cycle to break because the issue isn't actually about forgiveness. The issue is actually about healing. So there's a cycle that's happening that when you're just asking God to forgive you, you are forgiven and it's a necessary part of the process. But as you know, in James, um, sorry, in 1 Corinthians 6.18, it describes this picture the same way. Flee from sexual, sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. So what's happening is there's a damaging there's an affecting of your own heart, which causes there to be a necessary part of the process of healing. The amount of people I have spoken to that experience that cycle go, oh, I just feel damaged. And actually what you need is a healing space. Um, please know that as I talk about some of these things, I know no one in this room struggles with this at all. <laughs> but you may know someone. <laughs> and so part of it is not just being informed for your own life. It's actually being equipped in order that you can help others. Does that make sense? Very good. So the effects on identity, relationships, on our minds, on our hearts, it, it, it destroys people. But there is hope. <laughs> We've got through the hard stuff. There is hope. There is absolute hope. Absolute hope. What's that? <laughs> yes, help me. We'll get there. We'll get there. I want to let you know the first journey towards this process of hope is being humble enough to admit there's a problem. 
Confession is the main start of the problem. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for one another so that you may be healed. That picture of healing that needs. So number one, the part of where this hope journey comes across is that we need to cultivate, I think I've got this first kind of point here, cultivate a culture of confession. The longer everything remains in silent and in secret, you are trapped by the cycle of pornography. The first step is to find trusted friends who love Jesus, who love you, who want to see you free. You you need to externalize this dynamic and get the light of the King of Kings into your world to get the light in that brings freedom. If you're here as a single person and you're about to get married, married, just know marriage is not the solution to this problem. Uh, it doesn't. Don't ever think that your spouse is to, the answer to the baggage of sin in your life. Jesus is a solution, not your spouse. Um, if you're trapped by sexual sin, it's time to bring it in the light and confess it. Um, now, if you've not got anyone to confess it with, welcome to the church family, people. Um, I think part of the challenge with this is that it's embarrassing, Adam. Um, yes, it is. But the question is, how much do you want freedom? Do you want freedom more than the risk of being embarrassed? This is my story. When I was um, 11 years old, my auntie, uh, I love my auntie, right? She's a wonderful woman, but she's not a godly woman, right? But she's, a, she's, a, she's an amazing woman. When I was 11, I had an older cousin. My older cousin at that time was 18 and I was 11. And my auntie said, because we used to sleep over there a lot. This was in Wanneroo. And um, she, um, uh, I used to, it was like in his bedroom, there was two single beds. And I used to sleep in the bed when I was sleeping over. So he would be there, I'd be there. But he'd be out, he's 18 years old. He's got his vehicle, he's going out. And my auntie said, listen, at the bottom of the, the dress, dresser, the cupboard, there's a pile of um, Playboys in the bottom. And if you want to have a look at them, you can. Now I think about that comment <laughs> back then and go, oh Lord, Thank you, Auntie Joan. Uh, maybe you shouldn't have said that to me. I've spoken to her since, by the way, and it's all good. But, but I think what happened in my world is that dynamic got opened early at an early age and set in course an addictive pattern that didn't actually get broken until I was 23 years old and within the first year of marriage. And that it was actually quite bad. I actually couldn't go to sleep at night um, unless I had actually looked at some sort of material. Uh, it really affected me. And I know that I'm saying that today from a place of freedom. I'm saying that because I know what it is to be free and I know what it is to be trapped. Okay? Um, part of that journey for me is one where I thought it would be all be solved by getting married. It didn't. My first step was having trusted Christian friends who I trusted enough to go, this is what's going on in my life. And from that very first moment of confession, suddenly things started to open up in a way that I was on a journey towards freedom. And this is where the hope is. If you've made a mistake, it's not too late. If you're hearing my voice right now or you're listening to the podcast or whatever it is, it's not too late. It's not too late to confess. If you have breath in your lungs, you can begin the journey to take a strong decision and go, actually, I don't want to be trapped any longer because I want to live a life pleasing to God, not pleasing to myself. Does that make sense? 
if you know people who are trapped by sexual immorality, how can you move beyond, how can, they, how can you help move towards them? If you, if you, how can you encourage them? How can you be a, a listening ear, not of judgment, but of a reflection of God's grace to move beyond it? I've, um, that story I just told you then, I've been talking about that for the last 15 years. What God does, as soon as you start saying, hey, there's freedom in Jesus' name, guess what God does? He goes, fantastic, I'm going to keep sending you people all the time so you can help them. Literally every two weeks I will have this conversation with people um, to the point that I realise this is a significant problem. And how, how we talk is we talk about the nature of freedom spiritually, physically, emotionally. And that three dynamics is, I want to equip you this morning in a way that you feel equipped to help others. Does that make sense? Um, so the first one is cultivate a, um, a culture of confession. Yes, we've got that. Number two, this one's called starve the sumo. Starve the sumo. So this is an interesting picture. So if we had a sumo wrestler here, I would be dwarfed by his massiveness, correct? Now, there's no way I'm going to destroy this sumo warrior. He is way bigger than me. He is, I don't know if you've ever seen these, these people. I don't know what they eat, but my gosh, they are huge. Pornography is a bit like a sumo warrior. By yourself, you are just not going to defeat this thing. He's a monster and he's got you. What you can do is you can starve him. Just don't feed him. Stop feeding this guy. And guess what happens? He gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And all of a sudden you're like, huh, you know what I'm trying to say? There's actually a need for you to starve the sumo if you are, uh, I suppose, trapped by him, so to speak. Um, so this is an actually about an, an issue of mastery. I like that word mastery. Like what masters you right now? Does Jesus master you? Or does something else master you? Is it an issue not of sexual immorality, but are you mastered by something? How you know is that if you're mastered by it, that thing tells you what to do. You don't tell it what to do. So money can be that. Money tells people how to live. Now, I want to live in mastery, so I tell it what to do. This, this is a journey of mastery. And I love that word because Jesus is our master. Amen? I love 1 Corinthians 6.12 on this particular matter. Um, I think I've got it there. I possibly don't. It's probably before these slides. I'm so sorry. Um, I'll read it to you. It says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I love that scripture. There's a, there's a tenacity in that scripture. I'm not going to be mastered by anything. I'm only going to be mastered by the Lord Jesus. And so how are you guarding your heart when it comes to starving the sumo? When and where are you most at risk? Is it home alone? Is it when you're tired? Do you need monitoring software on your computer? Do you need to get rid of your next Netflix subscription? Do you need to get rid of your TV? Do you need to get rid of your iPhone and go get a dumb phone? Um, accessibility plus mobility equals vulnerability. Yes, I thought that too when I read that. Let me say it again. So we're living in a very mobile environment, right? So accessibility plus mobility equals vulnerability. So do you need to get off Instagram? Do you need to set up restrictions on your phone? I love this one. If you have an iPhone and your iPhone is causing you to sin, gouge it out. Better to lose your iPhone than to lose your soul. Now, 
Now, you, I'm, I'm listing these things, right? You're going, oh, do I have to do all of these? No, you need to do whatever it is for you to get free. Does that make sense? Whatever you need to starve the sumo, that's what you need to do. Now, doesn't mean do everything. Um, how do you protect your heart? What do you need to put in place? What do you need to remove? Avoiding sexual Im immorality starves the sumo. Make sense? Number three, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. It's your strength. Do you get more joy out of pornography than the presence of God? Oh, yeah, let's talk about it. That's hard, isn't it? Psalm 51.12 says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I like that phrasing. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What sustains you? When I was that early married man, um, which is now, oh gosh, 25 years ago. 25 years ago? Yep, 25 years ago. What was sustaining me was not the love and presence of God. What was sustaining me was sexual immorality. That was what was sustaining my heart. The heart gets what the heart wants. You can't escape what the heart wants. It feels too good. It really helps me get through the day. Are you being sustained by God or are you being sustained by something else? The sexual experience is meant to be pleasurable. That's how God designed it to be. But there's a greater pleasure and it's called the presence of God. Um, you've all heard this C.S. Lewis quote and I'm going to keep on quoting it until I'm probably dead. because It's so good in relationship to where do you get your joy from? It says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because they just can't imagine what is meant by an offer at, of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Number four, affirm identity. Affirm identity. Okay, I've rechanged it. Identity, deal with insecurity. Deal with insecurity. What's an interesting one is you can't fall into sexual sin and truly know who you are in Christ at the same time. It's like trying to be angry and smiling at the same time. You can't do it. Um, I've been given this piece of advice, and I've given it all the time, is that when you feel like you're on the edge of temptation, stop, say to yourself, out loud so you can hear yourself, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You hear me? Because what you're trying to do is you need to, in those moments of weakness, which we all have, is declare the identity of Jesus over your own heart. And I promise you, the times you've done that, and you mean it, not like, oh, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, you know. You've got to own it. You've got to say, this is true. I found those temptation moments actually beginning to dwindle. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you want to know the reference to that. The other thing I want to talk about identity, and this is a little bit of a comment into parenting, is that boys ask two questions and girls ask two questions. When those two questions get answered in the human heart, identity is established at an early age. And less time is mucking around with trying to get identity questions answered. And, you know, when we try and get those questions answered in our own way, we usually damage ourselves. 
The two questions a boy asks is, am I a man and have I got what it takes? The two questions a girl asks is, am I beautiful and am I worth fighting for? When those questions are established in the human heart at an early age, what happens is identity is established early and less effort goes into the idea that, oh, if I don't get those questions answered, I'm going to go answer them myself by doing something that is damaging to my own heart. Does that make sense? So one of the father's roles, yes, I'm speaking to you men, is to answer those questions in your young sons, in your young daughters, so that their identity is established. The first thing, I, f I never had a dad who did that, though. I never had a mum who did that. But you know who did it? When I said yes to Jesus, the Father in heaven said, Adam, you're a man and you've got what it takes. And he's been telling me that picture for my whole life. And I feel like I'm only just starting to believe it. <laughs> but when you have a firm identity, insecurity dwindles. Number five, meeting the need the right way. Meeting the need the right way? Yes, good. Meeting the need the right way. We, we, we all have a need for connection, to be valued. There's a real need. And it's meeting that real need the right way. It's not denying that there is a need. There's a need. Human touch, human uh, a sense of um, feeling wanted, feeling it's a human need. And it's not wrong. It's actually meeting that need the right way. Are you filling your soul's need the wrong way? If you are, you're going to damage yourself. What are you using to nourish yourself so that you can thrive in life? Well, I'm single. What am I supposed to do? Great question. And I think we need to speak into this dynamic. I think a sexually crazed world is reducing the reality of an appropriate physical touch between friends. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's a heightened sexuality in our society which makes look, any physical touch look like it's got the wrong agenda. But it's not wrong for brothers and sisters to connect with one another, to communicate value, to communicate acceptance of one another. I was confronted by this in Africa. African men hold hands walking down the street together. And I remember being in this environment and went, I'm challenged with it, right? Because I'm thinking, you know, what my presupposition is a sexually crazed world that I live in, right? What does that mean if I'm holding a man's hand? What the heck? So I went, nah, stuff that, I'm going to hold his hand. So I'm holding his hand, and he was a good friend, right? So we're walking down the street holding each other's hands. And I did it because I wanted to experience a sense of godly, brotherly, sisterly affection is a valued thing. In, at Red Door, there's this lady who, as a sister, I, I, I care deeply for. And she says, Adam, I just need a hug of a man to say I'm valued. And it's got nothing to do with anything sexual. Does this make sense? But, to, man, we've got to get better at I know people go, don't hug me, I'll get a bit prickly, you know. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is how do you do appropriate physical touch in the fact that we're family? We're family, especially in the church. Um, I don't think you guys got a problem with that here. I saw, I watched you all hugging as you arrived, so it was all good. But yeah, I think the point is valid, right? Let's meet the need the right way. But if you're single, please be reminded that the greatest relational high is not a physical relationship, but a spiritual relationship with your Father in heaven. The presence of God is the answer to the relational void you feel. You don't have to be married, right? You don't have to be. 
don't have to, marriage is not equal the greatest fulfillment in life, right? The greatest fulfillment in life is knowing Jesus and pleasing and walking with him. Amen? Very good, very good. Number six, self-control. What did I write? You have self-control. Um, but Adam, I can't control myself. Uh, it reminds me of a story about um, down the beach and there's a young man and he comes across this uh, beach beauty on the, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the beach. You know, she's on a towel. Don't worry, I'm not, it's going to be all right. Relax. Um, and he's like, I can't control myself. I've got to go speak to this, this young lady. So he waltz over, over there because he can't control himself, right? He's like, oh my gosh, I can't shake it loose, you know. And all of a sudden, out of the water becomes Mr. Olympus. He is 16 times size of this young fella. And he's like, all right. And he walks the other way. Where did that self-control come from? Where, where, what happened? <laughs> how you see how high the stakes are affects your self-control. You hear that? How you see how high the stakes are. So this guy's stakes are pretty high because he's like, if I continue on this path, I may be a pile of mush on the ground from the boyfriend, right? Silly picture, but you get it. The problem is when we think about the wages of sin, the wages of sin are paid down the track, not immediately. So when we think about this uh, sexual immorality space, it's actually down the track you're going to pay the wages of sin, not immediately. If they were paid immediately, this probably would not be as much of a problem. Uh, but they're not. They're paid down the track. However, fruit of the Spirit of God is self-control. So the Spirit of God living in all of us is causing our hearts towards self-control. Thomas Chalmers had a message called The Expulsive Power of a New, of New Affection. I know Mark would have talked about it beforehand. But when you're actually in a living, dynamic relationship with Jesus and the Spirit of God is flowing through your life, self-control becomes almost autopilot because it's the Spirit of God in you that's causing you to have self-control. You have self-control. Um, what are you looking at? What are you thinking about? What are you giving attention to? Have you ever thought about what you're thinking about? What are you reading on this topic? Best book, if you're taking notes, Alan Meyer, Australian um, pastor, author, From Good Man to Valiant Man. That is the best book. I know it has a man emphasis, but women can read it too. It's okay. From Good Man to Valiant Man. Last one, number seven, as you bring this home, fight in, the fight is not in the flesh, but in the spirit, in the spirit. It's not just a battle of flesh and blood, but there's a battle in the spirit going on. Ephesians 6.12. So if you're battling this, have you prayed about it? Have you prayed about it? Ask God to help you. That sounds like pretty straightforward, isn't it? <laughs> Amazing how some people forget that. Um, I discovered the power of fasting. Fasting breaks the spiritual battle like nothing else. My gosh. You want to deal with this real quick? Go and fast for 21 days. I mean, I'm talking about heavy duty, right? <laughs> Don't have food for 21 days and it'll get obliterated out of your life. So you understand, I'm not saying do all these things, yeah? You know I'm not saying that. You can confess this stuff to someone and all of a sudden you're free. Boom! But sometimes not. And sometimes you've got to kind of work through the list and go, oh, wow, we're in DEFCON 7 here. We've got to go for hardcore military style into this thing. You know what I'm trying to say? So I think there's an element of awareness 
Um, there's, there's an issue of generational dynamics, generational curses that can have an effect. Um, there's a reality of deliverance ministry that I think is an important aspect to th think about if you're completely trapped. Um, but know that when we pray, God hears us. One of the most amazing moments I ever had was the Lord's Prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, it says, keep me from temptation. Leadeth, leadeth me not into temptation, depending on what translation you're reading. And I remember thinking that, oh, Lord, are you leading me into temptation? So please don't lead me into temptation. It doesn't mean that. What it means is, God, keep temptation far from my doorstep, that I would not have to worry about actually choosing this. And then what happens is, as he protects you, you are starving the sumo. He's getting little and little. You're getting stronger and stronger. And then at this moment, you're like, thunk, thank you, Lord. And so when it comes your way again, and it will, you're strong. Please know today, my heart was to investigate this uh, arena of life in order that we can avoid it and walk pleasing to God. My goal was not to make you feel awkward, bring shame and bring condemnation into your heart. My, my hope, my joy would be you would be liberated from these dynamics in your life and your life would truly flourish because you are living the way God designed you to live. Amen. Why don't you just bow your heads and we're going to pray together.